This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, October 20th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, public health looks toward winter. Hannah Max joins San Miguel as contact tracing supervisor. Trail map making legend retires. And a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel's public health department is looking towards winter when it comes to COVID response. When we look at the data um, and know that we're going to see an increase in cases in the winter, or it's likely to see that, um, and we're likely to see an increase in other um, respiratory illnesses and hospitalizations, what is our duty in um, a tourism town, in a town with limited resources, um, to protect our community and also set clear standards. That's San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin speaking at a Board of County Commissioners meeting on Wednesday. She notes COVID numbers in the county remain elevated, but not off the charts. With that said, the numbers are significantly higher than they were at the same time last year. Our behaviors have shifted. We have different levels of protection through vaccines, and so that's understandable that we um, have adapted to a higher disease burden, um, knowing that severity um, is decreased with vaccines. Between August and October 2020, San Miguel County confirmed 230 positive COVID cases. When we think about the entirety of the pandemic, it took seven months before we even got to this number um, in our response. I think the more startling piece here is that out of all of those cases, about 44% um, were um, fully vaccinated individuals. Franklin says we should take those numbers with a grain of salt. There were a number of asymptomatic individuals who tested positive due to festival or event testing requirements, where under normal circumstances, they may not have been tested or counted. In addition, severity of disease has been much lower for breakthrough cases. Still, she says the county is looking forward to taking advantage of booster shots. The Federal Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday authorized Moderna and Johnson & Johnson booster shots. When thinking about moving toward winter, Franklin says public health also has to look at what she says is the hot topic of COVID response hospital capacity. Right now, the state is not doing well. She says about 40 percent of hospitals on the front range are on divert, which means they can't inherently take a patient who needs care. And as of this week, 90 percent of ICU beds in the state are full. So it's just um, continuing to be challenging, um, especially knowing that we're in October right now, and this is typically a slower season for um, um respiratory illnesses, for traumas, etc. But there hasn't been a break yet. With San Miguel County Public Health orders, Franklin has not yet made a decision on extending the indoor mask mandate. But she's looking at all the data heading into winter two of COVID. How do we um, brace for an influx of people, um, an influx of indoor activities, um, the holidays, etc., while still keeping our businesses open, our schools stable and open. Um, and um, there's uh, a varying degrees of um, approaches, um, but we really have seen the benefits of masks over this last um, couple of months. On Wednesday, Franklin looked to county commissioners and members of the Public Health Advisory Group for input. The feedback was resounding support for continuing the mask mandate, at least. Here's Dr. Jeffrey Coker, a member of the advisory group. If we relax things a little bit, 
If you give the Delta virus an inch, believe me, it'll take a mile. And if we have 90% ICU capacity now, and we double the number of cases that we have because we relax a very important mitigation factor, which is masking, you will have a very, very uh, unbelievable and um, terrible situation. So I think it's a small price to pay wearing a mask to avoid a potential disaster. Commissioner Chris Holstrom says she's heard frustration from members of the West End community about the mask mandate, asking at least to bifurcate the county. But right now, I I still maintain we have not seen any data um, that supports that notion. And in fact, I would say um, the data that we are seeing supports what we have in place right now. So I wish things were better. I wish things... um, supported uh, no, no mask mandate anywhere in the county, but I don't think that we can say that at this point in time. And Commissioner Hillary Cooper believes the county may need to go even further when it comes to public health orders this winter. All the, the mountain communities are looking at capacity and, you know, the potential for capacity restrictions because we are going back inside, um, you know, as much as maybe that was tough on businesses, et cetera, last year. I think we learned a lot from it. And I think it's um, one of the tools in the toolbox that we are going to have to take a look at. San Miguel County's indoor mask mandate runs through the end of October. Franklin says she plans to make a decision on extending or removing the mandate at the public health meeting next Wednesday. In hopeful vaccine news, Franklin says public health is preparing to begin administering vaccines for those 5 to 11 years old once approved. She anticipates vaccinations could start early to mid-November. Wear a mask, maintain distance, limit group size, wash your hands, stay home, and get tested if you're sick. The five commitments for containment are seared into our brains at this point in the pandemic. But once you move past containment, public health also turns to contact tracing to limit the spread of COVID. Hannah Max recently joined San Miguel County as the contact tracing supervisor. KOTO News sat down with Max to learn more about her and why she's excited about her new job in public health. Hannah, thanks for joining me to chat a little bit about your new role at the county. I'm very glad to be here. So you are going to be the new contact tracing lead for public health. Um, We're going to get into that. But first, can you just share a little bit of where you're coming from? What's your background? Yeah, totally. So I am um, a longtime visitor to Telluride, uh, but I'm a pandemic transplant here. Um, I was working remotely for till last June uh, for a tech company, and I just really realized I want to be in healthcare, um, hopefully eventually as a provider, um, but right now exploring sort of the public health side of that. Very cool. And so, I mean, you you just mentioned it, wanting to kind of switch into healthcare, but many people are able to work remote here. Um, what made you want to take that shift of being, I'm going to leave that remote from my home job and go into contact tracing in person, which is a very kind of intense job to be in. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what has kept me here and made us sort of decide to to move here is is the community. And I think that, um, well, it's nice to, it was nice to be working remotely and still feel attached to my community in Brooklyn. Like, I love the people here. And I think being able to feel like I'm some, in some sort of public service was really important.
diving in a little bit more, you know, at this point, a lot of people will know what contact tracing is. There's probably, probably most of the community has gotten a call from a contact tracer at one time or another. Um, can you share a little bit what you're going to be doing in your new role? Yeah, so uh, my role is really overseeing our contact tracing team, who are just the most incredible people. Um, it's really, I think each of them sort of has a niche and a sort of particular relationship to the community. Um, and that's been really incredible to see. Um, we have folks that are on the you know fire department in Norwood. We have people who are, you know, parents who want to help out with the um, school cases. And so really overseeing that and making sure that we have a team that really serves the diverse needs of our community. Um, we've brought on a few Spanish language tracers, which is really important. Um, so it's sort of managing the team, uh, hiring, making sure we have the right people in place. And then the other side of it is dealing with the data. So really making sure that we're tracking everything that's going on, um, tracking on the one hand in a way that where the state can really use our data for sort of bigger picture stuff, um, but also using that to tell stories of what's going on in our community um, backed by numbers. I know I've heard from Grace Franklin, our public health director, that they've been seeing more skepticism to answering the phone um, when contact tracers are calling in recent weeks and months. So I would love to hear from you, you know, maybe a pitch almost of like, why should people, you know, we're, we're over this. We don't want COVID to be a part of our lives anymore. Why should people still be picking up the phone and fully engaging when contact tracers call them? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult. I think you know, people have a real sense of shame and it's like COVID is out there and and we're all doing what we can. I think um, a really important part of this role is empathy. And even if people are choosing not to get vaccinated or can't get vaccinated or whatever might be causing that sense of shame, they're trying to do the best they can. And I think contact tracing is a really important part of that. Um, I think people need to know that when they're doing that, it's like the way that we're wearing masks to protect each other. When you pick up that phone call, it's really you're protecting your family, you're protecting your friends, you're making sure that they're not getting other people sick. And even if your circle of friends is relatively low risk, you don't know who's going to go visit a grandparent. Um, the other thing we've been seeing is we've been seeing some young people in the hospital. Um, and it's just really important that uh, I think we're all sort of on top of that and realize that that, that danger hasn't passed, unfortunately. <sighs> Yeah. You mentioned you are a pandemic transplant. You moved here from New York. Yeah. Very different places to be. Um, what is the thing that you miss most from being in New York? And what is the best thing that you were able to get away from by being here? Um, I think I got away from sort of, I think New York kind of has a competitive sense of misery in a certain way. Everyone's like, oh, my apartment's so small. Oh, this is like terrible. Um, and everyone is, I think, you know, your circle kind of becomes just the people you work with. Um, I think on the other hand, um, I, I don't know, I really miss like good Chinese food. <laughs> that's honestly, that's honestly my answer. Um, but I love getting to just spend you know, as much time as possible outdoors every day. And that is so meaningful to get to do. Hannah, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with me today. And welcome to the team. And hopefully not many people will have to talk with you, but probably they will. As I've been saying, negative vibes only. <laughs> Who is the artist whose work you've seen the most? 
If you're a skier or snowboarder, there's a good chance it might be James Nehus. Over the past 30-plus years, he's hand-painted over 300 resort trail maps, including Telluride. In 2019, he was inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Recently, Nehus announced his retirement from trail map making. KOTO's Matt Hoish spoke with him about his career and life in art. Growing up on a farm in Colorado, James Nehus liked to draw. First, it was just things around him. Then, he got sick. I think I was three months flat on my back with nephritis. And my mom bought me an oil painting set. And so I would lay in bed and paint landscapes from uh, magazine pictures. And, and, you know, after I got out, overcame that, well, I just um, continued to really be enthralled with uh, the landscapes around me. For Nehus, painting trail maps has always been more about the landscapes than the skiing. He didn't even learn to ski until he was an adult, enlisted in the military, and stationed in Europe. Eventually, he says, he became an intermediate skier. Skiing with a little fear. When it comes to trail maps, Nehus also didn't start until later in life. At 40, he moved to Denver and freelanced as an artist. But he was struggling. You know, I I was uh, just trying to get any illustration job I could get. One artist he admired was trail map-making legend Bill Brown. And he lived in Denver, so I looked him up and hoping that he maybe had an overflow of work and uh, that maybe I could uh, help him out. That cold call set the stage for one of the next great trail map makers in ski resort history. One job led to another, and another, and another. Breckenridge, Vail, Mammoth, Sun Valley, Jackson Hole, Whistler in Canada, Sun Mountain in China, Coronet Peak in New Zealand. Telluride, he says, is one of his favorites. Because of the dynamics and the um, San Juans as a backdrop, the diversity of the mountain is is just extraordinary. The list of Nehus maps goes on and on. But at the beginning, the map-making path wasn't a sure thing for him. At first, it was hard. Watercolor was new to me. Uh, I'd been an oil painter for many years and really felt like I didn't have the control over watercolor. You know, I, I just jumped in and learned it and, you know, worked it and worked it. Other parts, though, he says, came naturally like integrating different perspectives. Making a two-dimensional map requires moving a mountain around in your head and putting it back together. Nehus usually starts with aerial photographs, either taken by himself or sent by the resort. It's a lot about kind of rolling back the perspective. In other words, many of mine are traditional with the sky. Well, whenever you're looking at a mountain with a sky, you're looking horizontally across the mountain. But there's lots of slopes on the backside. So it's what I kind of do is get a perspective that's from above looking down so that I can get those back bowls. But I kind of trick you with doing it in such a way that I can get the sky in. When it comes to any reactions he gets from skiers and snowboarders, Nehus says he rarely identifies himself when he's on mountains. But every now and then, it comes up. I was on a lift one time with a, with a lady and her, I think it was her daughter, perhaps, grown daughter. And uh, we were talking and, and they asked about some run on the on the mountain, you know. And I said, well, let's pull out the map and look at it. So I pulled out my map. And so, you know, it just led naturally to it. 
and they were just beside themselves. They were riding, riding up with a guy that did the map. Those sort of chance encounters might now become even more rare. Now that he's 75, Nehus is retiring from map making. He wants to devote more time to doing landscapes. And his time at resorts, he says, is probably a thing of the past. I don't ski that good anyway, and uh, I'm so much into this, and I feel like I have so little time left that, uh, that I'm putting everything into this uh, new venture. After three decades on, around, and above the slopes, a well-earned après ski for James Nehuse. Preparations for the 2021-2022 ski season are underway. One small but vital step is getting your ski pass. Telski's local ski pass sale remains open. In person, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Oak Street office in Telluride and 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. daily at the Mountain Village office. Individuals can also purchase passes over the phone or online. The final day to purchase a pass at the local rate is November 13th. On that Saturday, the 13th of November, there will also be a rail jam from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Oak Street Gondola Plaza. DJ Wombat will be spinning tunes from 11 to 2. There will also be a number of winter gear giveaways. Wind is pushing leaves off the trees. The final festival of the summer is officially on the books, and the restaurants of Telluride are getting a much-deserved break. Even BIT is closing for two weeks, reopening at the beginning of November. But locals still need to eat, and some restaurants are staying open for off-season. In Telluride, Alpinist and the Goat, Brown Dog, Butcher and the Baker, Cocina del Luz, Coffee Cowboy, Esperanza's, High Alpine Coffee, Lunch Money, Rustico Steamies, and Telluride Truffle will all stay open. Shaken Dog Grub Shack, Telluride Coffee Company, and the Telluride Distillery will stay open in Mountain Village. Some local eats, including Caravan, Floridora, High Pie, Walk of Joy, Woodier, and Stronghouse are pushing into November before they close for a few weeks as well. Others, like Corner House, Cosmo, and The Pick, are reducing days of operation, so be sure to check the schedule before planning a meal. It might be off-season, but there's still opportunities to listen to music under the Telluride sky. The Transfer Warehouse is hosting Rocktober, with several concerts over the next two weekends, featuring a range of styles from bluegrass to funk. This Friday, Elk Range will play bluegrass music starting at 6 p.m. The next day, Saturday the 23rd, Acoustifunk with Mel and Eamon will take the stage for a free show at 5 p.m. Next Friday, October 29th, Disco Fuego will bring the beat for Funktoberfest at 5 p.m. The Arts District urges everyone to bring their later hosen and maybe some glitter. And closing out the month, the warehouse will host the annual Kodo Halloween Bash at 5 p.m., featuring musical guests Cousin Curtis and Joint Point, and of course, a costume contest and spooky drinks. More information on all the upcoming Transfer Warehouse events is available at telluridearts.org. Colorado is getting a new state park. Sweetwater Lake will include almost 500 acres next to the Flattop Wilderness Area north of Glenwood Springs. Governor Jared Polis says there are plans to open a boat launch in the next year, but public recreation opportunities are currently limited. 
The U.S. Forest Service purchased the property last year with help of state lottery funds and local fundraising efforts. According to the Glenwood Springs Post-Independent, the land was being considered for a number of other uses, ranging from a golf course to new homes. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Lake Mead on Monday. She surveyed drought conditions and made a case for the Biden administration's infrastructure plans. KUNC's Luke Hager has more. Water levels in the nation's largest reservoir are at an all-time low, threatening supplies for millions of people. Harris pitched the infrastructure plan and the Build Back Better agenda as a way to invest in water reuse, desalination, and the rollout of drought contingency plans. This is about thinking ahead, recognizing where we are and where we're headed. If we don't address these issues with a sense of urgency, understanding this is literally about life. The first ever mandatory cutbacks for some Colorado River water users go into effect in January, and the latest forecasts for Lake Mead show that more are likely on the way. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 30 degrees. Thursday should be partly sunny during the day and mostly clear at night with a high in the mid-50s and a low around freezing. Friday calls for mostly sunny skies with a high near 60 degrees. Friday night should be partly cloudy with a low in the mid-30s. This has been the news for Wednesday, October 20th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hey Coda listeners, Halloween is right around the corner and your kids are probably looking forward to candy and costumes. This year, you and your family can have some fun and learn about some spooky traditions from Mexico. Join Tri-County Health Network and the Wilkinson Public Library for a celebration of Dia de los Muertos. There will be fun activities for kids, snacks, and a screening of the movie Coco. Meet us at the Wilkinson Public Library on November 1st from 2 to 5.15 p.m. Go to tchnetwork.org for more information. Learn about another culture or celebrate your heritage by joining us for our Dia de los Muertos celebration. Hi, I'm Dr. Heather Linder, the founder of Telluride Whole Health Direct Primary Care. I hope you can join me at the library this Friday, October 22nd at noon, to learn more about membership-based primary care. Rather than having insurance companies dictate health care needs, Telluride Whole Health brings patients back to the center of care. The model is simple, it's convenient, and it's affordable. Members have 24-7 access to a provider, unlimited visits, and same-day appointments, as well as discounted labs, medications, and supplements. I've been a family physician in the county for over eight years, and I'm also trained in integrative and functional medicine. I have longer appointments with patients so I can try to determine the root cause of their health concerns. Telluride Whole Health also works with businesses to provide affordable health care benefits to their employees. Please join me this Friday at noon at the program room at the library to learn more how individuals, families, and businesses can re- receive more personalized care and save money. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.